So as I said, I'm going to talk today about, um, in preparation for uh, first oblations, blessings of novices, and renewal of promises, what it is an oblate is supposed to do. <laughs> and uh, I want to begin by reflecting, first of all, on the question of what does a monk do? Because we get this question all the time. So, you guys, uh, you run a soup kitchen? Nope. Uh, do you teach? Uh, not really. Uh, do you work with the sick? Uh, I mean, if, if they show up at our door, we'll take care of them, I suppose, but we don't have a hospital or anything. So what do you do? Um, and this reminds me of uh, a major problem just in the modern world in general. Uh, I think somewhere T.S. Eliot writes that people often ask what a poem means, but they don't ask what it is. And that's the more pertinent question. What is a poem? What is this poem? Uh, and because if you can boil it down to its meaning, then you don't have to write the poem, right? Uh, similarly, there's a great story about the composer Robert Schumann, who played an etude of his comp one of his compositions at the piano. And uh, his, uh, one person in the audience asked him to explain it. So he sat down and he played it again. Okay, so part of what I'm getting at is the question of what oblates are supposed to do is connected to this thing of what monks do. And of course, there are all kinds of things that monks can do, but the more important question is what is a monk? Um, and even that's not easy to answer, but certainly it's the case that monks are, monks and nuns are men and women that are set apart from the world to live for God alone, to seek God with all of their energies, uh, not to have a divided heart in any way. Purity of heart is part of what we seek. Uh, so we seek conversion, radical conversion, so that Christ is alive in us. And we share this gift with others then by just being. There's nothing we particularly have to do. This is why hermits can be such a great gift to the church, even if no one ever sees them. Just the fact that they exist, knowing that they're there praying for us, right? Uh, I can't tell you how many notes we get from people these days saying, thank you for praying for us. We need it <laughs> these days. It's a crazy time. And um, it's good to know that there are people who are seeking God's will in the midst of this and nothing else. Now, oblates don't do that, obviously, because if you were going to do that, you would uh, have to enter the monastery and we would tra train you in a different way. But there's a similar thing. An oblate is a person who has a relationship with the community of monks or nuns. And when anytime you have a relationship, of course, there are obligations on both sides. Uh, so we undertake to try to help you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ, in your divinization. We aim to share with you the fruits of our life, and we hope that you'll share with us the fruits of your life, that you'll be an encouragement to us, uh, that you can help us out with various things. You'll be praying for us. You can support us if it's financially or uh, helping with cleanup at some point, ushering on November 2nd, those sorts of things. Um, and so we can support one another in this search for God. And the search for God is, again, it's, it's what we do in a sense but in another sense, it's, it's a, an oblique goal because if we know where God is, um, then we can just do it ourselves. We, can, we, can, we don't need help. Um, 
But in fact, God always transcends anything we happen to know about him at any moment, right? So if we think we know who God is and, and what God is, um, we've limited God to our understanding and it's not really God anymore. And so uh, this is one of the reasons why it often feels like God is distant or, or dark in some way, uh, absent. Uh, this isn't because he actually is, but because he's inviting us to a deeper level of faith. In some ways, since we are saved by faith, in some ways it's, it's better for us at times if God feels a little absent because it forces us then to make an act of faith. And faith is a virtue, and the more we exercise it, the stronger it gets. And so uh, an act of faith could just be reciting the creed to ourselves, reminding ourselves, uh, however I happen to feel or wherever my, uh, you know, whatever is going on in my mind today, I believe that God exists, that he created everything. I believe that God is a trinity, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe that he created all mankind, that mankind sinned and, and uh, to save us, he sent his son. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was born of the Virgin Mary and became flesh for us. Uh, he died on the cross and was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, sent the Holy Spirit among us, founded a church to administer the sacraments. Uh, that I believe that he will judge all people, our actions, uh, and that there is life eternal, and I hope for that. So we can just say that and remind ourselves, yeah, I believe that, even if I don't feel it very strongly right now, the more I act on those things, the more I say, wait to act until I think about whether it's God's will. If I think about my sins uh, and prepare myself to be judged, I may seek God in the sacrament of reconciliation, for example. Uh, I believe that Christ is present in the Eucharist, all kinds of things we can do to strengthen our faith. And as I say, this in some ways is, can be more beneficial for us than if our, our awareness of God is somewhat easy, okay? Uh, just as uh, um, if, you're, if you're lifting weights and uh, if I pick up, you know, five pound dumbbells and do curls, uh, I probably won't get much out of that real quick. Uh, I'll have to graduate <coughs> to 10 pounds or 15 pounds or something. But when I, when I switch to 15 pounds, it's going to not feel good right away, right? I'll, ah, ah, and then it'll be, you know, feel stiff and sore for a day or two. And then I'll do the 25 pounds again or 15 pounds or whatever it was. And it'll be hard again. And after a month or two, it feels fine, right? So if we exercise our faith, it's in a similar way. It might feel painful at times to grapple with God's distance or apparent distance. Then I say, no, I know he's here. I know he lives in me because of my baptism. And the fact that I can't appreciate that at this moment is an invitation for me to appreciate it at a deeper level. And, and uh, uh, now, of course, we also get insights in our faith. And so I don't want to act as if it's only this one way. Uh, we have times of consolation. We have times of desolation as one way is traditionally spoken of. So... We are here as a monastery to support you in this work of faith, uh, to offer 
practices by which we can strengthen our faith, practices by which we can seek God. And monks make vows, of course, uh, three of them. Um, it's very interesting. I was uh, invited uh, a couple months ago to write a, an encyclopedia article. Uh, it's an encyclopedia on the reception of the Bible. And my article was going to be on monks from 1600 to the present, how we have received the Bible. And uh, I read the, art, the two articles by, by two scholars uh, before that, patristic uh, monasticism and medieval monasticism. And of course they covered most of what I wanted to say. I didn't want to just repeat them, but I, it occurred to me that one of the things that's different in the modern world, or was, this changed back since Vatican II, is that uh, in the Middle Ages, the idea that religious vows were poverty, chastity, and obedience became something of a standard trope in monasticism as well, even though we technically don't make those specific vows. Those, those evangelical councils are a part of our vows, but our, our vows are actually much broader than that because uh, they include obedience and then stability, uh, which means uh, when things get going tough with my community, I can't just bolt. Right? Uh, if I don't get along with my abbot, I can't just say, huh, the community's changed, I'm leaving, I'm finding a better abbot. Got to stick it out, we've got to find God in that situation, right? We've got to strengthen our faith in that situation. We also make this vow, conversatio morum, which uh, is a, a very interesting phrase that St. Benedict uses because it's what we call pleodasm. It's, it's, he's saying more than he, he can say by saying the way of life of the ways of life. Uh, because both conversatio and mos in Latin mean a way of life. Um, and so by promising conversatio morum, we're promising to live the monastic way of life as intensely as we can. And this is the way of life uh, for the Christian it, it, there's a certain kind of definitiveness about this. To put aside all other ways of life, uh, our American way of life, French way of life, um, Chicago way of life, whatever it is, uh, my personal lifestyle choice, put that aside. Uh, probably some of you have heard this. I'm, I'm going to run out of anecdotes if you come to enough of my talks. But uh, I had a Latin teacher in college. And when this word mos came up, morum is the genitive plural of mos. So conversatio morum is the, the conversatio of the ways of life. Uh, when he, we were learning this word mos in this class, he said, if you translate this as lifestyle, you flunk immediately. <laughs> it's a way of life. And that's actually kind of, it's worth dwelling on why he was so insistent on this distinction. A way of life is something that is bigger than me. It is something I'm, I'm instituted into or inducted into. So for instance, um, if, you, if you go to, um, I visited uh, our monastery at Ancalca a few times, which is in the southwest of France, near the Mediterranean, near uh, Toulouse. And uh, they're very insistent that their way of life is different than the Parisian way of life or what, or the, uh, way of life in Brittany, for example, in the Northwest. Uh, what's different about it? Uh, the pace is a little slower. Um, they're near the Mediterranean, so they have more 
seafood, for example. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's difficult to, quali to, to qualify, but the point of it is no individual invents that. You're born into it or you move there and then you live it. You, you learn, ah, they eat this way here. Uh, whereas in the United States, uh, we have to leave a tip after the meal. It's included in the check in France or <laughs> something like that. That's, um, uh, I can't think of anything offhand exactly. But the, the language, the literature, let's make an easier comparison. America, France. Um, we grew up in America reading, let's say, Nathaniel Hawthorne or Mark Twain, Shakespeare, some English authors, right? Uh, they probably don't read much Mark Twain in France and probably not very much Nathaniel Hawthorne. They read a lot of Victor Hugo, Balzac, um, French authors, right? Racine, Moliere. And uh, we don't, you know, how many of us have read a lot of Moliere? Probably not very many of us. Uh, and so it's a different way of life. A lifestyle is a peculiar modern thing where an individual tries to define himself by his own personal preferences, right? It's my lifestyle. I live this lifestyle. It may be a kind of subgroup. I may identify with um, some other persons, but there's always this sense of choice in it that I get to choose. And um, whereas a way of life is something that is a communal, communally organized uh, thing. So to promise to live the monastic way of life is to promise to change my way of life that I brought in with me and adopt the way of life that the monks live. Right, so um, Thomas Merton said the the diff most difficult thing to teach novices is how to sweep the floor, because uh, they're not allowed to sweep the floor the way their mothers taught them. They have to sweep it the way we do here, <laughs> right? <clears throat> so, so we promise this very expansive thing, and and what is the monastic way of life? It's it's quite uh, there's quite a history to it, as I learned writing this encyclopedia article. Where do you start? Where do you leave off? There have been thousands and thousands of monks, many monasteries. We have monasteries, uh, Greek-speaking monasteries. We have Coptic monasteries, Latin monasteries. We have monasteries all over the world now. And uh, every time we move into another culture, we learn new things about what's required of monks. Every time there's a persecution, we learn something new about what's required of monks. Uh, monks can be scholars, monks can serve the sick, uh, practice hospitality, all kinds of things. At the heart, though, uh, is, for our, in our case, the rule of St. Benedict. Uh, this is what mediates and, and instructs us in all of these things. One of the things I talked about in the podcasts that I, I haven't been able to finish because the studio is closed. <laughs> uh, I've got my conferences just about ready to go, but um, hopefully I'll record them in the next month or two. Uh, one of the things I talked about is uh, we adopted, or we're looking to adopt uh, five sort of obligations for uh, oblates. And when we say obligations, this is always as your state of life permits, <coughs> right? So it's not an absolute obligation the way a vow is. Uh, you have to do your best and you know, you'll know better than we will what the best is. And if you're ever not sure you know, if there's a conflict between two obligations and you're not sure which one's more important, that would be a great time to speak to us or one of the mentors, right? To try to figure this out. 
Uh, but these obligations, first of all, would be uh, prayer of the, the liturgy of the hours in some way, right? Uh, so that's obviously really central to the monastery. If you read the rule of St. Benedict, there are um, 13 chapters very near the beginning of the rule that deal with the divine office. Mostly the nuts and bolts of when you pray what, but also some reflections on how it should be done, what our state of heart should be, um, and so on. We see that uh, the church gives us these beautiful texts, the Psalms and hymns and so on. And then our job is to mean what we say, right? So, so this is a great way to learn how to approach God, just by using the words that, uh, that are the word. You know, uh, God's revealed word becomes our word. And we try to conform our hearts to what we're saying in the Psalms. Uh, such a beautiful thing. I've been just reflecting on this a lot lately that... Uh, um, in a, in a time, again, like this, uh, it's easy to get focused on one thing or another. And the Psalms always force me to feel with the whole church because if I'm in a good mood, I have to remember the people who are suffering and then I'm given a psalm about suffering. And if I'm having a bad day, then I have to praise God, <laughs> right? So there's always something that's challenging me to get out of myself, my own limited feelings and to try to feel with the church, to try to conform myself to Christ, the whole Christ. Uh, so it's a very beautiful way of praying and challenging. We also need then personal prayer and the, the typical monastic way of praying individually is Lexia Divina, so meditation <coughs> the scriptures. So just reading them very slowly. Um, there are lots of techniques for this and you know, I won't cover them today. But uh, there is, I'm sure, a podcast about this, in formation podcasts. Um, and this was, again, one of the things that's been recovered in uh, monastic exegesis, or how we receive the Bible today. Um, before Vatican II, there was more formation in uh, Jesuit spirituality. It was kind of the uniform formation for all religious for quite some time. And uh, monks have always read the Bible. Uh, but we've made more of a deliberate point of practicing Lexio Divina since uh, the release of the document Perfecte Caritatis in 1965 on the renewal of religious orders. And the document tells us to go back to the spirit of our founders. Okay, and so uh, obviously St. Benedict is the, the key figure here. But again, Benedict was a monk who already was benefiting from 250 years of monasticism. So, uh, so we look back to the Desert Fathers and what did they do? They meditated on scripture. They memorized huge parts of scripture and thought about it, tried to put it into practice, right? So that's another thing. I've already mentioned the third obligation, which is reading the rule. And this can be done in various ways. Uh, one technique is just to read a portion every day. If you go to osb.org, uh, they, they have a link for the rule, and it will give you the portion of the rule that we're reading that day. Uh, and it's, it's actually kind of interesting, too. This is a good reminder. Yeah. Also, our website. Our we website does it. We're the online website. I don't want to say that, so that, uh, Great. We get that selection. Excellent. Is it the same one? It From, is. Yeah. And yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, it's, what's interesting about it in this case is it's a good reminder that we have men and women who are practicing this way of life because 
I think they alternate every day between referring to the abbot or the abbess, right? So uh, there are translations of the rule that are done for women's communities, and it's good for us to remember that we're in communion with them too, especially because there are about 20, twice as many Benedictine women as men. <laughs> so, um, but when Benedict was writing, there were not uh, monasteries of women that were so prominent. That, that's something that comes up more in the Middle Ages and <coughs> in the modern time. Then, uh, there are two things that integrate you into the church more profoundly because, uh, you know, the, the more we identify with Christ in the church, the stronger our faith is going to be. This is really important. Uh, the church is the body of Christ. And so the more we participate in its life, the more we participate in the life of Christ. And again, this can mean many things, but the two key things for us is that there has to be involvement in your parish, at the very least going to Sunday Mass, right? Uh, but participating in the sacraments, frequent confession is good. Um, if you have time and you can, it's great to do other things for the parish, to volunteer for this, this, or that. And then to support the monastery is the fifth one. Uh, another way to be integrated into the church through the little church of the monastery. Um, this is... Uh, kind of a nickname for monasteries is uh, the Ecclesiola, the little church. There's a monastery that kind of contains everything um, that you need to have a local church. But it's not a diocese. Um, we don't have bishops either, but um, it's, it's similar. You know, an, an abbot, there are faculties that bishops have that abbots don't have, but abbots have a lot of faculties. So even uh, for instance, I, I have the faculty of uh, inducting men into the minor orders. I can't ordain anybody a deacon, uh, but I can institute them as lectors or acolytes in preparation for that. Uh, that flows from the position I have as the superior of an autonomous monastery. Uh, so I have a pastoral role then uh, for the monks here, but also for the oblates. So that's, those are some things that we're expecting you to do in some way, right? But I really want to make sure, I think part of the anxiety that I catch sometimes when I hear people asking, what are we supposed to do, is uh, uh, this difficulty we have these days, again, of defining ourselves by what we do rather than by what we are. And uh, I just had this insight that I wanted to share with you. I shared with the brothers this morning. I'm teaching a class on moral theology right now. And if you would have told me when I was 25 years old that I was going to be teaching moral theology and, and enjoying it, I would have told you you were crazy. <laughs> um, and uh, which, which the funny thing about it is I was very interested in <clears throat> questions of morality uh, as a musician and, and uh, in the popular music world. Uh, there's a lot of immoral music and activity that goes on. And the whole point of um, the, the group that I started with this good friend of mine was to see, could we produce music that would fit in these venues, but that would actually be morally responsible and, and edifying? Is that, is that possible? Um, and, and the joke I like to say, it might not be funny to you, but 
the, the further along we got, the, the less we sounded like a rock band. <laughs> Our music became very strange and um, uh, we, we were not able to play those venues very easily because uh, our following became very, uh, we had a good, strong following, but it was very small. <laughs> and the worst part is they, they didn't drink tons of alcohol. So, so clubs didn't want us because that's where they made their money. Um, so we would have our, our fans just sitting there and listening and they wouldn't buy anything and just take up room. And uh, so then we were thinking about these questions all the time. What is, what is good music? And one of the weird things about this that we discovered is that we would talk about trying to make music morally good. Not just good in the sense it sounds good, but morally good too. So what's the difference between those two meanings of good? Why do we have two meanings? We have sort of aesthetically good and morally good. Uh, in the ancient world, there was no difference between the two. They were of a piece. But I didn't really figure out the major problem of this idea until I read After Virtue by uh, McIntyre. And I realized I'd been going out at it the wrong way. And um, in any case, I, I have come to be quite fascinated by all the problems that uh, we have talking about morality in the modern world. So one of them came to me while I was working on my lesson plans for this week. And I promise you this has relevance for you all. Uh, Aristotle, who is kind of at the, uh, the headwaters of most of our thinking about morality, um, he says in his book, The Nicomachean Ethics, that uh, enjoyment or pleasure follows upon the completion of some task, the achievement of something. So the example I used uh, this morning was that when my mother was a girl, she and her mother would do laundry together once a week, and they didn't have a washing machine. So that meant putting the clothes in the soapy water, and then in the clear water, and then putting them through the ringer, hanging them on the line fully and putting them away. And my mother would always say when she would tell this story, when you got done at the end of the day, you felt like you accomplished something. It was very satisfying. And uh, I used to think about this because I was the launderer for the first four or five years I was in the monastery. And, uh, you know, throwing a load of uh, clothes in the wash and then running and doing something else. Then, oh, that kind of switched into the dryer. You're running back and doing that. Um, I didn't have the quite, quite the same sense of accomplishment at the end of the day that I think my mother did <laughs> when they did laundry. And I used to teasingly ask the brothers if we could get a ringer and uh, I could try washing the clothes by hand just to see. And then I realized, of course, I would be too much of a wimp for that. Um, but uh, the point is that my sense of, if, if there's a lack of joy in the world, uh, if, if there's a lot of anxiety in the world, some of it is because we no longer experience this sense of achievement that just comes with doing the tasks that are for us. I think there are many reasons why this happens. Uh, and I would invite you to reflect on this yourself. But I think one of the problems is that we feel that we are judged by our achievements rather than uh, being accepted for who we are or being uh, appreciated for who we are. There's, there's always an expectation we're supposed to do the next thing. Um, I don't know if you've heard of this guy, Jocko Willink. Uh, he's this former Navy SEAL who's a self-help guru now. And uh, he's, he's very intense as you can imagine. And uh, 
So his self-help might be somewhat self-defeating at certain points, like when he says things like, once you finish one thing, you can't rest. You have to start the next thing. The enemy's always thinking his next strategy. You've got to be ready for him. And um, it, I appreciate that, and I, I appreciate the Navy SEALs and what they do, but I'm not sure that that's realistic for, say, uh, a settled communal life where we have to, again, it's kind of an individualistic thing, right? It's, it's about self-help rather than community help <laughs> or family help or whatever it is. Um, and in common life, we have to have times when we relax and, and enjoy ourselves together, right? And normally... This happens, you know, we, we go through the day, we work, we stop, we have dinner, sit down and we relax. Uh, that, that would be kind of the typical time to enjoy the fruits of the work of the day. Um, and, uh, you know, I think a lot of difficulties with school from home, work from home, is that it's very hard to set these to, to be done with the, the work for the day because... Um, you can always go back to work now because it's just on the computer, which is in, you know, in your house. So, um, so this is one difficulty. Um, and then the, the other problem is we get used to seeking pleasure or enjoyment in things that don't cost us anything or in the sense that they're not an, an achievement. So just watching... Um, um, you know, gag videos on YouTube or something might be, or cat videos or something, might be enjoyable, pleasant, might put me in a good mood for a minute or two. But there's something a little bit, it's, it's not connected to any achievement of anything, right? It's not, uh, it's, it doesn't build up the community in some way. I'm not recreating with other people, which is literally recreating myself after having worked hard and being tired and so on. I need recreation. Um, and instead we, uh, and the other aspects of this, of course, are, are legion today. There are all kinds of improper pleasures that people partake of rather than experiencing the completion of some task. So this is uh, just to say again that I think part of the anxiety for oblates that I hear is a concern that I'm supposed to be doing something and I'm not. And uh, so there are things you can do. If you're not sure what to do, you can pick up the Bible and just uh, start reading Matthew's Gospel. You could, uh, you could pray an, an extra office from the Liturgy of the Hours if, uh, uh, if you haven't gotten through all that. You could read the rule. You could read spiritual books. You could take a walk. <laughs> um, who knows uh, you can pray about it if you think maybe, maybe I need to be more involved in my parish or maybe I need to think about ways I can help up the monastery more pray about it ask about it find out maybe there's something we can help you with but the point is isn't uh, the point is always that these activities are to help us to empty ourselves so that we welcome Christ right and to show to love one another to serve others, uh, and to in order to serve others, we have to allow Christ to serve us first. And so, it's really important to take time to pray alone, to frequent the sacraments. Uh, sometimes it's good just to sit. Uh, I, th this is another aspect of the modern world, I think, where we've um, it's easy to miss out on some 
key things that the ancients knew about. I mentioned taking a walk. So when I take a walk, you know, part of the enjoyment of it is uh, just, I, I love the autumn, just to see the colored leaves, to smell the leaves that have fallen on the ground, uh, splash around in puddles, and to think about this as God's creation. That God, this is God's gift to all of us, right? He made the world to be our temporary home, and he's got a better world that he's going to institute after this one's done. And if this world is so beautiful, how beautiful will the next world be? Uh, so to see, also to see things like how God has planned things, that just amazing that, uh, you know, uh, an acorn will fall off of a tree, fall on the ground, <coughs> and after 30 years become a huge oak tree, right? And God sees all those, uh, all the mechanisms in the DNA. He made all that. It's amazing. Um, it's amazing. We don't get to see in the city the, the stars, but uh, I'm from uh, uh, Wisconsin originally, and Green Bay, you can't really see the stars very well, though I, I have seen the northern lights from Green Bay. But you don't have to go very far out to see the Milky Way, you know, and to think, wow, you know, God... God knows all of those stars, and that's the Milky Way, that's just our galaxy. You know, there are apparently billions of other galaxies out there. Uh, and just to think that God, who, who takes care of all that, cares about me personally. You know, he knows my name, and he wants to live with me. He wants to take up an abode in our hearts, right? In each one of us individually. Um, he has a secret name planned for us in the next life, right? He, he knows who we really are. So our parents gave us our names, and that that's, helps us to get established in understanding who we are. But God knows who we really are in a way that other people don't. So just to meditate on these things, um, it's a great uh, curb to anxiety. <laughs> you think about God, he can snap his fingers and all of our problems will be gone. So there's some reason why he's allowing us to go through whatever we're going through. And we can exercise our faith again to be at peace with that, to welcome it, to trust him, to seek ways in leveraging our sufferings, uniting them to the cross, uh, thinking about the resurrection, thinking about Christ offering himself. So the, uh, to go back to oblates, obligations, is that the word we're gonna use? Uh, in, uh, I, I've used it. In the ceremony? Sure. <coughs> um, you know, if you hold that thought, I sure, can sure. promise for me, I'll be right back. Yeah. And, you know, my, my uh, reason in checking this is I, I don't want to use the wrong word. An obligation. I want you to, to understand that this is something we're going to do together and that uh, the, the goal is always to find Christ in all things rather than to um, r jump through a set of hoops, <laughs> right? So it can be possible. This is true for monks too, by the way. You might go through a period of time in your life where you're not able to, to take care of all five things at once or maybe not any of them. So for instance, sometimes monks get sick and they can't attend the office. They can't be at meals. 
Um, they, they might not be able to do all kinds of things. And uh, this doesn't, they don't cease being monks. They're, they're still monks. Uh, and as soon as they're better, they'll, they'll come back. Um, and uh, so these obligations always are understood in, in light of what their purpose is, what the goal is, rather than, uh, and, and the goal is eudaimonistic. That's a fancy word that just means well-spirited. Uh, the goal is for us to uh, enjoy God. This is, uh, by the way, I sent around, I had Father Timothy send links to uh, Abbot Austin's uh, conferences on Augustine's, well, not Augustine, but on the virtues. But this idea of enjoying God, I, I don't know if he mentions this, but this is an Augustinian idea that uh, God's creatures are to be used. God himself is to be enjoyed. We can't use God for anything. Um, but everything else, the purpose that he's given us the, the world, our friends, our families, our enemies are, are to help us. They're, they're, they're useful ladders to getting to a relationship with him so that we can enjoy him. And there's that uh, two-stage thing again. We have this effort that we have to put into <clears throat> loving one another, serving one another, forgiving one another. And at the top, there is enjoyment. But the enjoyment is union with God. So this is an Augustinian idea. And Abbot Austin's talking about how the virtues help us to enjoy God, right? That's the goal. The goal isn't to become a good person, right? <laughs> well, we will become a good person if we're united with God. What is, uh, the... I shared this with some of the announcements I spoke with uh, mm -hmm. the past several weeks. The formula that we will be using in the new ceremony for oblation is as follows. I, state your name, of hometown X, offer myself to Almighty God as an oblate of this monastery of the Holy Cross at Chicago, and I promise before God and all the saints the conversion of my life according to the spirit of the rule of our Holy Father, St. Benedict, insofar as my state in life yeah. So, the spirit of the rule of Saint Benedict is boiled down into these five obligations, I guess. So we don't. Maybe we can come up with a better word than obligation. But uh, this is how you would live the spirit of the rule, the spirit of our Benedictine way of life. Um, I think it might be good for me just to pause here and see if there are any questions. Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. um, in regards to the office, mm -hmm. so uh, I pray every day, uh, morning prayer at least, for sure. Never miss that. But nonetheless, I'm using a single edition uh, Christian prayer. Are you mm -hmm. familiar with that? Yep. yep. Um, that doesn't line up with what you do here at the monastery, does it? Mm -hmm. Or does it? And I'm just, that's my question. Sure, sure. <coughs> so there, are, are, there are several versions of the office. Uh, there is. Uh, our monastic office, which is a traditional one that's that until Vatican II again was very closely parallel to the Roman office, the, the office that uh, priests of the Latin Rite would pray. Uh, that office of the Roman Rite was shortened greatly, it was compacted a lot after Vatican II, and that's what Christian prayer is using. 
And that itself is a kind of condensed version of, of the Roman office. Um, uh, they're both valid in terms of, you know, uh, praying the office. They, they've both been approved. They're, one of the ways they do line up is in the use of the calendar, for example. We follow the same calendar with some exceptions that we have particular monastic saints that don't appear in the Roman calendar. And that might be an interesting thing just to um, uh, share the, the calendar that we use with the... We, we have. Yeah. Okay, uh, yeah. It's, it's available on the website. Yeah. Okay. For those who are interested to download. I'm not sure what it would mean if you were praying the Roman office, uh, if there would be a way to incorporate the monastic saints. We have a special set of prayers just for monks and nuns. And um, uh, the Roman office doesn't have that. So I, I, I'd have to give that some thought or maybe consultation to, to see. But if, if the saint of the day that we're praying here doesn't appear in the Roman office, you can just do the regular Roman office and then maybe some kind of commemoration of the saint, just a little prayer at the end. Sure. Um, so the Psalms line up, line up though? They don't, yeah. Um, and th they didn't quite in the old order either. There are differences between the Roman office and the monastic office. But again, as the liturgy was growing, uh, there were lots of Benedictines who were popes and, and uh, bishops who helped to craft the office, but the new version uh, uses a lot fewer psalms and they're spaced out over four weeks rather than one week, okay? Um, one of the things I think we've talked about again is somehow making our monastic office available to you all. The difficulty there is we have to deal with copyright questions because we use texts that are not ours, you know? And um, uh, we, we actually, we, we got into a, a little bit of a pickle with the CDs. So, um, we, I didn't think about this, which was not intelligent on my part, but we did the readings for Mass for Ascension and Pentecost, and we realized, well, wait, the, the Bishop's Conference holds the copyright on these, so we can't record them and sell them without permission. And that, that turned out to be an interesting... Uh, Father Timothy did all the work on that. But. So we'd, we'd like to be able to make this available, um, you, uh, you, if you wanted to pray it in Latin, you could buy the Latin version uh, from the uh, Salem houses. But, yeah. uh, Robert, if I could just add one thing to sure. this question. Maybe of interest to some. Uh, <clears throat> so, our office obviously is not available at this point. The, the volume that is available, which is closest to our office, is something called the monastic diana. That would be a pretty ambitious undertaking for most oblates, I think, to, to try to make use of that. But we do have uh, an oblate novice um, who has uh, undertaken the task of harmonizing the monastic diurnal, which is based on the old calendar before Vatican II, with our monastic calendar, house calendar here. Um, so he's set up a document that has instructions for how to pray the monastic diurnal on a daily basis um, using all of the materials that are available in that volume in a way that harmonizes with our calendar here at the monastery. And it's a pretty impressive achievement. Uh, uh, he has a mind for these things. Um, it might be something to look at for those who pray uh, the post-conciliar versions like Christian prayer to see if we could do the same thing. We can find out a way to harmonize it with our calendar, provide some instructions for people so that they can 
pray, say, the offices of the monastic saints that we do here uh, at the monastery, and therefore bring you into maybe a, a greater sense of unity with our prayer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. I would just say probably uh, one of the things I would look into is uh, it's always safest if we get some kind of official approval for the office that we're going to be praying, if, if we're going to make alterations to it. That shouldn't be that difficult, but, uh, but that's something we probably should do just to be on the safe side. Joan? How does the, the bravery differ in that? Mm-hmm. That's what I do. Yep, yep. So the bravery is the same as Christian prayer, but it's got all the visuals readings in it. And um, I think it's got a, a few more of the commons. Uh, so it's the Christian prayer takes the four volumes of the Roman breviary and condenses it into one volume. And so it, it's got, it's pretty impressive. It's got most of the stuff in it, but you have to do a lot of page Because yeah. <laughs> anytime there's a repeat, you have to find it in the book. So it takes up less space. Michael. Okay, so these are, I don't have a fully formed question yet. Mm-hmm. But, Concept of obligation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Obligation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Simone uh, Bay mm-hmm. uh, in some of her books um, talks about the obligations we owe to another. And it's for her, it seems that morality is almost interchangeable with obligations mm-hmm. and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So I still haven't formed a... I'm probably just looking for your thoughts on that. Sure, yeah, I'd be happy to. So, so the virtue of justice has to do with what we owe other people and what they owe us. So living together, exchanging goods together, sharing, um, giving credit where it's due, giving honor where it's due and respect and so on. So those are all obligatory. Um, and so I, another reason I've been kind of using this word because it's descriptive but also hemming and hawing about it is that uh, the goal is always to become a just person, not just to fulfill my obligations. And sometimes justice requires me to go beyond the strict obligation. So for instance, uh, justice and mercy do not oppose one another. In some ways, mercy is a higher form of justice, right? But it it requires prudence to exercise it properly. Um, And uh, so, so yes, uh, we're, we're obliged by many things. You know, we're obliged to honor our parents because of uh, the commandment, because of what they've given us that we can't return. Uh, we're obliged to honor commitments, contracts, any of those things. And so when, when novelists make promises, you're promising to do something specific, right? And, and so we're outlining what those promises entail. Uh, but the goal, again, is personal transformation. You know, the goal is uh, conformity to Christ, not to tick off boxes. Yeah. So, other questions? Well, maybe I'll say just a little bit about um, uh, the three vows that we make as monks. Uh, Because one of the things you might notice that's different about this formula is that we used to use uh, the three monastic vows to, uh, by analogy, for, for oblates. And in a way, we're still doing that, but we've just say conversion of life, right, according to the spirit of the rule. And this is a, a, as far as we can tell, this is a more traditional formulation. The previous formulation we got 
uh, from another community, but Father Edward, who was the Oblate director back then, doesn't remember which community it was from. Uh, but we're, as I say, we're trying to keep this in the family, in the Benedictine family. And there are lots of monasteries out there. So um, I've already spoken a bit about stability. I think this is an important idea for all of us today, stability. And I believe we used to have the oblates say stability of heart. And this is a really useful concept. The, the idea is I, I, be, I try to work against a heart that goes around to too many different things, that abandons a project when it becomes too difficult or abandons a situation when it's not fun anymore. Um, I think we, we know stable people and they're very helpful to have around, right? Right. Um, this is something I've, I've learned. I, I started to notice something when uh, back in the days I was playing in this band we, uh, two of the bandmates and I managed to rent a, a house. Um, the, our landlady, I had, I had rented an apartment in this house from the landlady and uh, she was moving back to Iowa where she's from. And she offered to rent the whole house to us, which was fantastic. And I realized after living in the house, not just in the apartment, but actually being responsible. So part of the contract was now we're responsible for making sure if there are any repairs that are needed, we let her know and we arrange for the, the people to come and fix things. We got to keep the place clean, all that stuff. We got to mow the lawn. <laughs> you know, keep, she was a gardener, fantastic gardener. We've got to weed the garden. We've got to trim things, all this. I learned a lot about gardening that those two or three years. I started to realize after about four or five months living there that I was starting to think civically. Like I'm thinking about garbage pickup, you know? I'm thinking about my neighbors and um, what, how can we play in such a way that we don't uh, be bad neighbors by making too much noise late at night, for example, which bands can do sometimes. Um, if we come back late at night, which we did from shows, you know, how do we, how do we live with our neighbors? Um, who's our alderman? What's he or she doing, right? Uh, what's, what's going on in our neighborhood? So this comes from being stable, like putting down roots in a place and saying, this is my place. <coughs> now obligations flow from uh, being a neighbor to somebody, right? Being a part of uh, some kind of larger entity. And uh, this was a revelation to me because before that, as a college student and then uh, social worker for uh, uh, a summer, I was moving all over the place. I lived in the summer of 93, I think I lived in four different apartments. <laughs> so I was used to just picking up and going and, and uh, then you don't think much about your neighbors when, when you know you're only gonna live there for three months. Um, and uh, so stability helps us to uh, have that perseverance that's so important to St. Benedict that uh, we're, we're not flighty, we don't give up on things, but we are committed to seeing something through. Uh, this will require us to carry the cross, St. Benedict says. So we actually participate in the cross through patiently living out the, the life that, that we're in right now, right? This doesn't mean we can't ever move, by the way. This doesn't mean, even monks can switch communities from time to time. Uh, a monk could be, you know, one of us could be elected abbot president at the next general chapter and we would leave and go to Rome. Uh, it could happen. It probably won't happen for any of us, which is fine with me. 
Um, but my horizon is set by this place. So one of the things we've been doing with all the unrest on the south side in the last several months is reaching out to other pastors and ministers to talk about what a coordinated Christian response to this would be. Because it, it matters to me whether uh, not only Bridgeport, but Bronzeville, Canaryville, Pilsen are safe, right? And so to have networks of people where we pray for each other, we talk with each other, we give each other tips, we, we help each other out in various ways. This, uh, I wouldn't do this if I felt like, well, let's just leave, let's get out of here. <laughs> Um, or if I, I didn't see, uh, you know, I have more responsibility for this because I'm the superior and the, the seller, so the business manager. So, uh, you know, if, uh, if there's unrest in the neighborhood and something gets broken, it's my responsibility to fix it. <laughs> so I don't want it to get broken in the first place. Nor do I want people fighting with each other. If there are legitimate complaints and so on, let's talk about it. Um, and uh, but this flows from this sense of stability and so one of the first things we can always do in searching for God is just to look at the, our lives as they exist now and uh, the obligations we have to a spouse, children, parents, neighbors, co-workers, bosses, subordinates, etc. and uh, to see where Christ is in those relationships, what God is asking of me in those relationships. Um, rather than, I think, one easy way out is to think, ah, I can't stand this coworker. I can't wait till I can go home and pray. <laughs> I have to pray for that coworker, and I have to somehow find Christ's message for me, at the very least, if not Christ himself, in that person. Um, so, Last of all, with conversatio morum, obedience is a tough one. Father Timothy and I have been talking about that. And um, there's a good article in this handbook, uh, but I'm, I'm just going to gloss over it uh, for today and just say a little bit more about conversatio morum uh, and the, especially the rule of St. Benedict. So in reading the rule, this is something I hope that the Formation podcast will help you with. We want to try to find analogies to these monastic practices like obedience. <coughs> there are always going to be analogies, right? So obedience has a very specific meaning in monastic vows. Uh, if I tell Father Timothy he has to do something, he has to do it, right? And uh, I similarly, if I, I have superiors as well, if they tell me I have to do something, if canon law says you have to do something, I have to do it. So when Father Joseph was ordained last week, there are all kinds of paperwork, all sorts of paperwork I have to fill out. I have to get, uh, we asked uh, Bishop Perry to do the ordination. He needs permission from the Cardinal Archbishop. That means I have to write to Cardinal Supic and ask his permission, right? There's all kinds of stuff that has to happen so that we follow God's will. We follow the canons of the church. So I can't just do what I want, nor, nor can Bishop Perry, <laughs> right? So we, we, uh, we can't just do what we want in the liturgy. I have to be obedient to the rubrics of the liturgy as they're <coughs> Uh, so I have to practice obedience too. It just looks a little different from the perspective of a superior. Um, but there are all kinds of these. That you would have to do this on analogy because you don't have the same very strict obligation in this case. And so um, the, 
the sorts of obedience that is owed to God would, in say, the case of uh, married couples, have to be understood in terms of the sacrament of marriage. But under no circumstances should you, under, should you understand, for example, your relationship with your boss at work as one of obedience, <laughs> religious obedience. That would not be a good idea. Um, and it, it wouldn't really flow from your promises as oblates. So we have to find, on the other hand, um, you know, trying to stick to the company handbook, the employee handbook, following the laws, right? If there are laws that govern your work, if you, you work at banks, you have to follow a bunch of laws, I'm sure. If you're an accountant, you have ethical responsibilities, right? Uh, all kinds of things that flow from your state of life. Uh, and then to see in these things, I think of accounting especially because I, I studied it when I first uh, took vows because the, I was made business manager right away after I, I became the, after I made my solemn profession. And uh, I was very impressed by the, the ethical dimensions of it, right? That uh, if you're going to do accounting right, you have to be aware of the ways it can be abused and, and to have safeguards against that, to have all kinds of um, checks and balances and audits, structures of auditing and so on. One has to discipline oneself not to put a, paint a rosy picture where there isn't one. And so I, as I'd like to tell the brothers as a, uh, I'm an extremely conservative accountant. <laughs> I plan for the absolute worst. Um, I, I plan for the most <laughs> possible expenses and uh, the least possible income. <laughs> And that way, at the end of the year, it always looks really good. We did better than we expected. But it's more than that. It's a question of, I don't want to mislead the community and get ourselves into a bad financial bind, right? So, um, so accountants have to be honest about what the data is telling them, and this is an ethical thing. And there's a kind of obedience to the internal practices of whatever craft I, I happen to practice, if I'm an accountant or um, uh, whatever job we have. So there is that sense of obedience to the parameters of the job that I have. Um, but it's not the same thing as, uh, again, if a boss tells you to do something, it's probably prudent to follow your boss's uh, uh, request, uh, but in no way does he exercise the same kind of uh, uh, authority over you that a religious superior would. It's a different thing. Okay. Um, I might be able to take one more question before I head upstairs, but that's part of my obedience of getting, getting to the office. So, Anything else before we part ways today? Well, thank you so much. It's great to see you all, and I really, uh, I'm, I'm glad we could meet down here today. And um, uh, you know, we'll, we'll keep trying to do this and find ways to stay safe. Um, but uh, it's just, it's, as I've been saying every meeting, it's so important that we get together. Really important. So let's pray together. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, Pray for us. Our Holy Father, St. Benedict, pray, pray for us. us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.